Open with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. We'll be starting in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on the right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah comes down to take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. 
This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. Father, please be with us this morning as we look at your word. We pray that it would do its good work in our hearts. Amen. I've got three points for you this morning. This sermon is probably going to be one of the most bare-bones sermons you'll hear from this pulpit. The three points are this. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is dead. At the Musée de Louvre in Paris, which translates into the Louvre Museum, there hangs an oil-on-canvas painting of Louis XIV. Louis ruled uh, the French during the mid-17th century, and during this time, the country of France experienced unparalleled prosperity and power. Louis was an absolute monarch. He was so in control of the state that he did not even bat an eyelash when he said, I am the state. Propaganda was important to Louis. He recognized the value of using any means necessary to control the minds of his people and how they think about certain things. And he recognized the value of art in propaganda. He employed a stable of artists from architects to painters during his time. One of his most personal pieces, the propaganda meant to kind of continue the cult of the glory of King Louis XIV, was a painting. Self-titled, of course. This painting was meant to communicate in every way possible the royal magnificence of the king. His face was angled and painted with an expression that was meant to demonstrate confidence. His gaze is looking down at the viewer of the painting, and this is meant to communicate the power of his stature as a king. You don't look down at him, he looks down at you even though he's really only about as tall as Russell Berger. Surrounding King Louis are billows of silk curtains. Underneath his feet is lavish carpeting. Both of these are meant to communicate the opulence that a king deserves. To the left of Louis stands the marble column. This symbolizes the strength of the monarchy which is the strength of Louis himself. There is no wasted detail in this painting. The king is covered in long, flowing purple robes. Purple was, and had been for thousands of years, the color of royalty. The robe was made of ermine fur, laced with golden, stylized lilies. On his hip hung a sword meant to communicate the ferocity of his power. But of course, this sword was no normal sword. It was in a sheath of gold with rubies and jewels all over it. And in case you were wondering if he really was as cool and as powerful and as full of splendor as you might be thinking that he is, in his right hand, he rests all of the weight of the monarchy onto a golden scepter. This is the image of a king. Is it not? 
when you think about a king, when Herod or Pilate or the Jews think about a king, although some of the aesthetic details might be different, white guy in France, African king in Africa, Chinese monarch during whatever dynasty, there might be aesthetic differences, but this is what you think about when you think of a king robed in splendor and glory. But the image that Mark paints for us this morning at the end of his gospel could not be any more different. Rather than pomp and ceremony, rather than honor and strength and vitality, Mark shows us that Christ spends his last hours on this earth being mocked as a fake king with no honor and no glory and no splendor and no strength and no control. It shows us a Christ wallowing in weakness. You see that almost immediately as the soldiers begin to mock Jesus. It wasn't uncommon in ancient days when a king would go through a town or a village that he would send someone through the roads before him who would go, All hail the king! All hail the king! Here comes the king! All hail the king! This was no different in Rome. They would say, Ave, Caesar, Victor, Imperator. All hail Caesar, the victor, the emperor. It was almost certainly this phrase that the soldiers had in mind as they began to shout and to salute Jesus mockingly and say, All hail the King of the Jews. Nothing about Jesus being a king makes any sense in today's text. Kings have armies. Jesus has no one. He's been abandoned by His disciples. Kings have power. Jesus, if He does have any power, isn't doing anything to show it. He seems weaker than most men. Kings are grand orators, clever, slick communicators. Jesus is like a lamb being led to the slaughter. He's not opening his mouth. He's not saying anything. Kings conquer. And Jesus has absolutely no aspirations of ever taking over any kingdom of this world. Kings are magnificent. But here Jesus is lowly. The idea that Jesus, beaten and bloodied and bruised and spit upon, hanging on a cross, could be in any way a king is ridiculous. It's foolishness. Not just to Jews, but to Gentiles alike. The Roman soldiers mock him. The people walking by on the road mock him. The religious leaders mock him. Everybody mocks him. You said you were the king? Is this it? Is this what being a king is? Why don't you come down off the cross, king? Do something, do anything to act like a king. Writing about this event to the Corinthian church, Paul says that a crucified Messiah, and remember, a Messiah is a God-anointed king, a crucified Messiah is a stumbling block to the Jews. 
and its foolishness to the Romans. Crucifixion is how non-Roman citizens die. Crucifixion is how thieves and political dissidents die. Crucifixion is how slaves die. It's not how a king dies. This account today reeks of all kinds of irony. Kids, if you don't know what irony is, here it is. Patience, Isley, Micah, Cohen. Irony is when something happens that you almost think wouldn't make any sense to happen in that scenario. It's just the the last thing that you would expect. And when you read the story about Jesus dying on the cross, you see that it's full of irony. And if you go back and you reread this whole section of Scripture with this irony in mind, I think that it will spring to life for you. Instead of wearing the royal robes of a king, woven from the finest linens fit for royalty, Jesus is wrapped in a mock production purple cloak. Instead of showering the king with kisses of affection, the soldiers cover him with their spit in disgust. Instead of the ornate golden laurel wreath resting gently on the top of his head as it would upon the head of Caesar, Jesus is crowned with a crown of thorns that dig into the flesh of his forehead and into his skull. Instead of receiving words of honor and reverence as Lord and King, Jesus receives petty and venomous mockery. Instead of having his subjects fall prostrate before him as Lord and King in reverence, Jesus is surrounded by his enemies falling prostrate before him in pretension. Instead of receiving good gifts as a contribution to his kingship, Jesus receives blows from a staff masquerading as a scepter. Instead of having a servant to tend to his royal needs, Jesus has a man conscripted that is forced to do something, pulled out of the crowd to serve him as he goes to his death. Instead of a reception with a royal banner announcing the glory of his name as he enters into his kingdom, Jesus has a wooden plank with the all-too-ironic title, King of the Jews. Instead of receiving honor as a king returning home from a battle victorious, entering into the city to the praise and adulation of his people, Jesus stumbles covered in blood outside of the city where he will die on a hill in shame. Instead of the masses clamoring to get a glimpse of the king and his glory, crying out to him in adoration, Jesus receives a stream of passers-by who mock him as he dies. Some of them may very well have been the people who praised him a few days earlier. Instead of being served the finest wine in the kingdom, the good wine, the kind that gets broken out for celebrities and politicians and at expensive weddings, Jesus is offered a sponge soaked in vinegar on a stick. Instead of being surrounded by his royal subjects to his left and to his right, Jesus dies surrounded by thieves 
Instead of death in a royal chamber or on the battlefield, Jesus dies on a cross. What kind of king is this? What's a suffering king? He is the suffering king. And that statement in and of itself is full of irony. It doesn't make sense. But friends, this is what all of Christianity is like. This is the wisdom of God in the way that He confounds our wisdom in the wisdom of this world. If you want to gain your life, you must lose it. If you want to be great, you must be a servant of all. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be wise, you have to be a fool. If you want to live, you must die. If you want to be strong, you have to be weak. If you want the glory, you must embrace humility. If you want to be free, you must become a slave of all. If you want joy forevermore, you must suffer here and now. And if you want to know what the God King is like, you must not look only to the kings of this world who rule their spheres with complete sovereignty. You must also look at the suffering servants. If you want to see what a king looks like in the kingdom of heaven, you must not look only at the throne. You must also look at the cross. Did you know that we were created to be kings and queens? That was God's original plan for us in the garden. We were meant to be like His vice-regents, His representatives on this earth, reflecting His glory to the world. We ruined that with sin. But God is recreating the world. And while we are not quite kings and queens yet again, we are called to be ambassadors. Ambassadors are the representatives of the King. And so we, as Sixth Avenue Church of God, as we disperse and go back out into the world, we don't go back out representing ourselves, we go back out representing the King. And so as you go about the business of representing the King that you serve, what kind of King are you trying to represent? The King who is full of strength and glory and might and vigor always? What about the suffering king? What about the king who looks like Jesus here in this text today? The king who lays down his life for the good of others. The king who is strongest in his weakness. This irony built into Christianity is God's way of humbling the wisdom of this world. God uses the things that are not to put the chain, the things that are. He uses the lowly things of this world, the nothings of this world, to humble the somethings of this world, the strong, the proud. The Lord uses a suffering and crucified king to display his wisdom to the rulers of the age. And he uses you and me least of all. I think if we were to try to go about figuring out a way to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, 
to see all peoples and all tongues and all tribes and all nations converted to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, we would probably form a committee. And we would look for the best and the brightest. Or we would use as much money as possible. I've seen it on the mission field. You know, got a problem? Throw my money at it. That'll solve it. Or we would use political powers. We would use the strength of our armies. We would, we just, we would never come up with this idea called the church. Where we gather a bunch of nothings, a bunch of no ones. And bring them together and make them into a body. And use that body to display the glory and wisdom of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. The church is the body of the Christ. The King who dies on the cross. And for that reason, it is foolishness to the world. So when I see churches that the world loves, that the world accepts, that the world applauds, that the world is excited about, I'm a little concerned. I don't, I don't want us to be hated unnecessarily. I don't want us to be unpopular just so we can say that we're unpopular. But there's something about the weakness of the king that if we represent it here and now on this earth, the world will look at it and they will hate it and it won't make sense to them. But God knows what he's doing. Point number two. Jesus is the Son of God. Believe it or not, since I just spent the last 20 minutes harping on it, the kingship of Jesus is not the main point of the Gospel of Mark. The kingship of Jesus is not even the main point of this chapter of Mark or this pericope, this chunk of text in the Gospel of Mark. The divinity of Jesus the truth that Jesus is the Son of God is the main point of this text. As you read this account, you can feel this beautiful symphony of tension that Mark has created. There's no wasted detail. There's nothing that's superfluous here. Everything adds to the sound. From the ceremony of mockery by the Roman soldier soldiers, to Jesus' inability to carry the crossbeam, to the crowd mocking Him as He hangs, to the religious leaders getting the last laugh as they taunt Him on the cross, the darkness covering the land. As you trace these things out in this text, you can feel the tension growing, 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 thicker, thicker, stronger and stronger. Then Jesus cries out to the Father, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? And as he does that, he identifies with the psalmist as he cried out. And as we all cry out when we feel we've been abandoned by the Father. And then everyone waits to see if Elijah will come down and rescue him. And then finally, Jesus utters a loud cry. And the temple curtain tears from top to bottom. And Jesus breathes his last. But the crescendo of the text doesn't come when Jesus dies. It's not when He breathes His last. It comes in verse 39. 
The centurion looks up at Jesus and says, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Do you ever watch cooking shows? I do, and I don't know why. I watch them on YouTube. Gordon Ramsay, Jamie Oliver, a bunch of other people. I never cook anything. One of the things that you'll notice about these cooking shows is the way that the dish always needs something else. Like, you've watched this guy go through every effort to make this food as good as it can possibly be. He's using tools that I've never heard of. I don't even know where I could begin to buy them. He doesn't just use regular tomatoes. He uses tomatoes from this particular valley in this particular place with this particular acid profile. And he makes the plate, and as it keeps going, it keeps going, you're thinking it's getting better and better and better, and you're thinking, well, there it is, it's done. But it's not done. It's never done. There's got to be a swig of olive oil on top, or a dash of cilantro, or the salt guy, salt bay, whatever his name is. You've you got to do something to kick it up another level. You've got to do something to put an exclamation point on the plate. That's what this feels like from Mark. As the Roman centurion looks up to Jesus as he breathes his last, and he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. This feels like Mark's exclamation point for the point that he's been trying to drive home throughout the whole Gospel. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's verse 1 of this book. Mark 3, demons see Jesus and they call out to Him as the Son of God. In Mark 5, the legion asked Jesus, what do you have to do with us, Son of the Most High? When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, Satan says, if you really are the Son of God. And throughout the whole book of Mark, we've seen Jesus say and do things that people don't do. He has control over the elements. He has control over sickness. He has control over the demons. He has control of the interpretation of the law. He has control over sin and the ability to forgive it. When Jesus forgives sin, they ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? When he calms the wind and the waves, his disciples ask, what kind of man is this? And even when the disciples get it, like when Jesus, when Peter responds to Jesus with the right answer, they don't really get it. If they did, they wouldn't have abandoned Jesus. When the religious leaders are confronted with the reality of the divinity of Jesus Christ, their hard hearts and blind eyes prevent them from accepting it. And now here at the very end of Mark's Gospel, we see a Roman centurion standing at the feet of Jesus as he hangs on the cross. And he confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. It's interesting to note that Mark is writing to the church in Rome. You see that all throughout the text. Here he even translates, Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani, so that the church that he's writing to will know what that means. And here we have a Roman centurion, a Gentile. The exclamation point of the Gospel. Pointing to, I think, the reality of the fact that Jesus Christ, as our brother Mark prayed earlier, 
as king of the world. And he came as the son of God, not just to save the Jews, but to save everyone. Jew and Gentile alike. Now, there are still a number of details in this text that we haven't looked at and we're probably not going to look at this morning. We haven't talked about the significance of the land going dark for several hours. We haven't talked about the vinegar offered to Jesus or the wine laced with myrrh. We haven't said anything about this man, Simon of Cyrene, or more specifically, why Mark mentions him by name and even gives us the name of his son. We haven't looked at the casting of lots for Jesus' clothes. I haven't spent any time on the amount of time it took Jesus to die. Neither have I tried to pull in any of the details from the synoptic gospels to paint a picture of the crucifixion. Let me tell you why. Have you ever used Google Earth to zoom in and look at your house? It's pretty incredible. We did it for our house when we lived in the jungle. Technology, am I right? There are certain ways that you can approach the text. This is like your little five-minute seminary lesson. Sometimes you can zoom all the way in on your house, and you can look at your roof and your yard and your car and your garage and, you know, all that. You can back out and look at your neighborhood. Or you can zoom out even further and look at your whole city or your whole state or your whole country. Sometimes when we come to God's Word and we study it, we zoom all the way in, and we say, that word, therefore, what's that therefore? Right? And we dig in to the minutia, and we zoom all the way in on the text. We've done that often throughout the book of Mark. We do that almost entirely, exclusively on Wednesday nights. Sometimes you can zoom out a little bit. You know, you study three, four, five, six, seven verses at a time. Sometimes you can zoom all the way out and preach on an entire book. I might do that when it's time to preach through the book of Haggai. Sometimes the further out you zoom, you lose sight of some of the details, but you can see some of the more prominent features. I think that's true of the text today. We zoom out of this text a little bit, and we can see some of the most prominent features of this text, like the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, and that is the most prominent feature sticking out to us this morning. It's really important for us to understand this point that Mark has spent this whole book trying to drive home for us. Just again and again and again and again and again, Mark wants his readers to know that Jesus is the Son of God. So I want you to know that Jesus is the Son of God. I want you to hold it, to roll it around, to look at it, to smell it, to explore it, to really understand it. Because apparently it's very important. Patience is my daughter and the unfortunate recipient of many of my sermon illustrations. I hope that that doesn't come up in therapy later in life. When you look at her, you see me. You see it in her brown hair and in her brown eyes. You see it in her plump cheeks and her little pot belly. You see it in her lack of athleticism and simultaneously her love for food. You see it in her sweet heart and her rambunctious spirit. You see it in her incredibly wide feet and stubby fingers. And I'd appreciate it if nobody looks at my fingers after this. 
You see it in her love for arguing and her passion for good hugs. When you look at patience, you see me. In an infinitely more profound, in an infinitely more perfect way. When you look at Jesus, you see the Father. As Paul says in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. John says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God and is at the Father's side and has made Him known. At one point in His ministry, one of Jesus' disciples, Philip, asked Jesus, Jesus, are you ever going to finally show us the Father? And Jesus replies like this, Philip, I have been with you all this time, and still you do not know me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is God the Son. And as God the Son, He reveals to us who God is and what God is like. In Jesus Christ, we see God as clearly as we can possibly see Him. He is the exact imprint of His representation, says the author of Hebrews. And we killed Him. Like an animal attacking the person, trying to rescue it, we killed the God who came to save us. I've had conversations with unbelievers before where they said, if he would just come down and reveal himself, if he would just come down and show himself to me, I could get on board with this whole Jesus thing. But friends, what we learn from this whole story is that that is absolutely and certainly false. Jesus Christ came to His very own people, the recipients of the promise of the Messiah, and they killed Him. God did come down to earth. And we hung Him on a cross. Which leads us to point number three. Jesus is dead. Mark is not sensational or sentimental about the death of Jesus. He could have told us about the terrible asphyxiation. He could have described what now doctors call hypovolemic shock. Lack of blood volume. Kills you real painfully. He could have talked to us about the horrendous agonal respirations where a person just sort of has these tiny, shallow breaths as they die for a very long time. He could have told us about the sound of bones crunching in his wrists and feet as the nails were driven down into the wood. But he didn't. Mark states the matter plainly. He was crucified. And then when Jesus dies, he states it even more plainly. Jesus breathed his last. There is a time to talk about pierced hands and flayed flesh. 
But it feels a little out of sync with the way that Mark writes about the death of Jesus. I don't have to describe it for you to understand that Jesus, for you to understand that Jesus died a terribly painful death. This whole wine mixed with myrrh that was offered to Jesus, that was common for women to offer up to people who were about to die on a cross. The myrrh was meant to act as a sort of analgesic, something to kill the pain as you experience the most excruciating pain on earth. But Jesus refused it. He absorbed the fullness of the pain of death on a cross. And yet he doesn't say anything about his physical suffering. He doesn't say, my wrists, my feet, my back. He doesn't cry out, please help me, I can't breathe. When we finally hear Jesus speak as he dies on the cross, he speaks of a different kind of pain. Have you ever felt a deep emotional pain? Or maybe a severe spiritual pain? The kind that makes you feel like your insides are being ripped apart? Or the kind that makes you wish that your insides were being ripped apart because the spiritual, emotional pain you're feeling is so bad you'd rather feel anything than that? Isn't that the worst kind of pain? On the cross, as Jesus breathed his last, he is certainly experiencing physical pain, but when he cries out with a loud cry in verse 37, he's feeling a pain more severe in that moment in his soul than anything that anyone could ever do to the body. He's experiencing the pain of the wrath of God. Writing about this event later, the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. First Peter says it like this, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. But He didn't just bear our sins as Lily read for us today from Isaiah 53. He also bore our punishment for our sins. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. Well, what was the punishment of our sins? What is the punishment of sin from God? It's the wrath of God. And you see this spun out as you read everywhere in your New Testaments. Everywhere where somebody is talking about salvation and the thing that we're being saved from. It doesn't say that we're being saved from poverty. It doesn't say that we're being saved from ignorance. It doesn't say that we're being saved from negative emotions or poor life choices and experiences or anything along those lines. It says that we're being saved from the wrath of God. Whoever does not obey the Son, says John, shall not see life and the wrath of God remains on him. Romans 5.9 Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, that means we've been, we've made a way for us, God's made a way for us to be forgiven, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. 
When we say that we're saved, what do we mean if we exclude the category of wrath? Saved from what? John, 1 John says he is the propitiation of our sins. Propitiation, fancy theological word that means that the wrath of God has been satisfied. 1 Thessalonians, for God has not destined us as Christians for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are two destinations for every single human being on this earth. Unity with Jesus Christ or suffering under the wrath of God. Jesus suffered the wrath of God. He took the punishment for the sins of those who would believe in Him. And friends, I don't know that I can describe to you what the wrath of God is like. In the time of Martin Luther, there was a man who would go around and try to raise money for the Catholic Church, Tetzel. And the way that he would do it is he would call all the people of the city into the city square, and then he would hold his hand over the flame of a candle to try to elicit feelings of fear, try to get you to empathize with the pain, to imagine what hell will be like. That is certainly manipulating of people's emotions, but not only that, it's not even that good. The tip of a flame on a candle, a Bic lighter, When Jesus wants to describe what the wrath of God is like, He describes a place with pain so severe and so intense that people literally grind their teeth in agony. They weep. They gnash. The story of the rich man and Lazarus shows us that the man who suffers God's wrath in hell is desperate to escape it. Desperate. And this is what Jesus is experiencing on the cross. He is suffering this pain willingly. Why? Well, for you and for me. We should be on that cross. You should have been on that cross. The wrath of God that was poured out on the head of Jesus Christ should have been poured out on us. We should be in hell at this very moment. We are rebels in this king's kingdom. We have loved ourselves and hated God. We've rejected and suppressed His truth. We have not honored Him as Lord and King. We have worshipped the gifts rather than the giver. We have chosen the pleasures of this fallen world rather than the pleasures of God. We have loved the things that He hate and hated the things that He loves. We've committed high treason. We've done violence and injustice in the land. We've committed adultery in our hearts. We have stolen and lied and cheated and covenanted coveted. And we have broken all of God's laws in a thousand different ways. What does justice demand of our souls? It demands that we die. 
But we didn't die. Jesus did. Here we are. We live. God in His great kindness, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. When we should have been crushed and punished, we were saved and given mercy. He loved us when we deserved anything but love. And now by His stripes we have been healed. He has cleansed us. He has adopted us into His family. He has sanctified us. He has given us sight to see and ears to hear. He's washed away our sins and made us white as snow. He has given us His righteous robes. He's given us a home with Him in heaven. He's given us what His Son, Jesus Christ, deserved, but didn't get. And He gave Jesus what we deserved. Now I'm saying we, 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 this possessive plural pronoun. But I want to be absolutely clear. When I say we, what I mean is Christians people who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. I do not mean that Jesus died and paid the price for sins of people who will never turn away from their own sins. This offer of salvation has been thrown wide open to the world. There is no one who is disqualified from it. Black, white, Asian, fat, skinny, young, old, divorced, married, Smart, dumb, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. Bald, tons of hair on your head. Able to grow a beard, not able to grow a beard. Jesus Christ has made this offering of salvation available to anyone and to everyone. But there there is a condition, and that condition is repentance and faith. And friends, if you have not repented, and if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, there is a wrath that still awaits you. There are only two ways that sin will be dealt with by God. On the cross or in hell. And the only way to escape hell is to embrace the Son, the King, who died on the cross. So is that it? Is that the whole story? Jesus is the Son of God, and the Son of God is dead? Is Jesus' death on the cross to pay the price for our sins the end of the Gospel? No, friends, it isn't. And next Sunday, we will see the full Gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its splendor and glory when we see Him resurrected. Let's pray. Father, we know that You have been with us this morning, our tiny church. We know that You've loved us with a special love. We know that You've been faithful to us as You've opened our eyes and our ears to hear and to see Your majesty in Your Word. And we pray now that You would help us to savor it 
as we go back out into this fallen world. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Please stand with me.